I'm afraid I'm going to serve as a bit of a jack-in-the-box as the uh, master of the conversation and the way that we have agreed to do this is that Margaret will make a few um, shortish opening remarks about the origins of the war and then Hugh's going to move on to the meaning of 1914 and then we thought we would debate this in some ways amongst ourselves and then of course open it up to all of you. I'm sure you're burning with questions already and, and no more after you've heard them speak. So Margaret, you're up first. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, one of the things I've been doing a lot in the past year is talk about the origins of the First World War, as of course um, Hugh has, and as Patricia I'm sure has as well. And I've come to dread the question, which always comes at the end of whatever I've been saying, when someone puts a hand up and says, can you say in one sentence how it started? <laughs> and I can't, and I don't think anyone can. I mean, the origins of the First World War are so debated and so complicated that I think there is no simple answer possible. It's been estimated that in English there are something like 30,000 works on the origins of the First World War. I, I don't know who counted them or indeed if, even if it's accurate, but I think we've all had the experience of going to libraries or bookshops and looking along the shelves and seeing that books on the origins of World War I are much more numerous than books on the origins of World War II. There is much more of a consensus among historians about how the Second World War started and there is none, and I think there never can be, about the origins of the First World War. And I think the reason for that is that there are so many factors at so many levels over time that you can pick out whatever particular factors you want or particular agents you want or particular policies you want and make a very good case for saying that these started the First World War. But in fact, I think what you always have to keep in mind is in fact what you have is a complex of factors which made the war likely. I don't think it made it inevitable. I think one of the very dangerous things we, we tend to do, and, and you, it's always a temptation in history, is we look back, we, we know the end of the story, and so we try and prove that it had to begin in a certain way, and we try to show that it, this was the way in which it developed. And because we know that the First World War broke out, we tend to assume that it was bound to break out. My own view, for what it's worth, is that it needn't have broken out in the summer of 1914, and you can certainly see the tensions that were there in Europe. You can see reasons why certain countries or certain statesmen in certain countries might have decided that war was a good thing to wage at this particular moment. But I think Europeans could have, and Europe could have got through the crisis in the summer of 1914 as they had got through previous crises. I and mean, I think we have to remember that there have been a number of crises in Europe, really from the end of the 1890s, and they were becoming, I think, more frequent. The serious crises were becoming more frequent. In 1911, there was a very serious crisis, or two very serious crises, one over Morocco, where yet again France and Germany were facing each other and, and threatened to draw their allies into a confrontation. There was a very serious crisis also in 1911 when Italy decided to attack the Ottoman Empire to seize its two North African provinces, which it then made into the unhappy country of Libya. And this showed that the old sort of standoff agreement among the European powers that the Ottoman Empire would be maintained could now be broken with impunity. And it encouraged, in particular, the powers in the Balkans who had their own designs on the remaining Ottoman territory in Europe. In 1912, there was a very serious crisis starting in the Balkans in the First Balkan War. 
And again, this threatened to draw in the greater powers. Russia was the protector of Serbia. Austria-Hungary is the enemy of Serbia. And then behind them, of course, their friends and allies. Yet it didn't lead to general war in 1912, nor did the Second Balkan War of 1913 lead to a general war. And so I think, just as those crises had been, in the end, settled without war, I think the crisis of 1914 could have been settled. And I think what we have to consider in 1914 is first of all the impact of those previous crises, which had led, I think, in part to a dangerous sort of complacency that here comes another crisis in the Balkans where we know how to deal with those, we know that there'll be a certain amount of talk, there'll be a certain amount of back and forth, <coughs> and then there will be some sort of conference of ambassadors, there'll be some agreement reached and things will calm down again, because that's what had happened in 1912, that's what had happened in 1913, that's what had happened in the earlier crisis over Bosnia. And so I think there was a sort of dangerous complacency which in some cases meant that statesmen didn't really react until it was almost too late. What also I think had happened by 1914 was that powers had got used to the idea that they could use threat and they could use mobilization as a deterrent to others or as a way of forcing others to, to, to accede to what they want to do. And of course the great danger with using deterrence, and in this case they, they often tended to use military mobilization as a form of deterrence or as a form of pressure, the danger in using it is that you reach a point where you actually have to go ahead or you lose all credibility. I mean, deterrents have to have credibility. And I think dangerous lessons, as well as a dangerous sort of complacency, had been learnt by 1914. And the final thing, I think, which helped to make the crisis of 1914 so particularly dangerous was the conclusions or the resentments that people had accumulated as a result of the previous crises. And so you got in St. Petersburg by the summer of 1914 leading Russian statesmen, the Russian foreign minister, for example, saying things like, if we don't assert ourselves to support Serbia this time, we won't be able to hold up our heads as a great power. Or you got, in certain cases in Germany, leading statesmen saying, if we don't back Austria-Hungary this time, and we haven't backed them before, then we may lose them as an ally. And as the German foreign minister, foreign secretary said at the time, we've allied ourselves to that sort of moldering hulk along the Danube, but the trouble is, if we lose them, who else do we have? And that really was a problem. And so I think what you had in the summer of 1914 were a number of things which really were the product of the previous history. Even then, you had the capacity um, for people to stop the war. The, the Kaiser in Germany did not have to sign the mobilization order. The Russian Tsar did not have to sign the mobilization order. And so I think you, we always have to take into account as well human frailties. And so trying to understand the origins of the First World War is like I've often thought, a chess game on many levels. You need to understand the individual key players, their motivations, what they're thinking. You need, of course, to understand the, the bigger game being played out on a bigger board. I mean, these are related. It's like a chess game with perhaps three different boards, all of which are, are related in some way to each other. So a move on one board, a change in demography, for example, or a change in the economy, or a change in values, or a change in attitudes can affect the actions of the individuals on, on a, perhaps another board, and the actions of those individuals can, in some cases, affect the forces on the lower board. And so trying to weave this all together makes it a very, very complicated story indeed, which is why I think we never will come to any sort of conclusion. Um, you can look at the great forces, you can look at things like nationalism, and this was an age of heightened nationalism. You could look at imperial rivalries, you can look at economic rivalries, you can look at the tensions which globalization brought with it. And brought tremendous prosperity, brought tremendous advantage, but also brought tremendous tensions. 
just as, in fact, it is bringing today. And you can look at the plans that the military were making, the fact that so many of the plans assumed that they would be going over into the enemy territory and fighting what they hoped would be decisive battles. You can look at the railway timetables, which perhaps put pressure on um, to get the, the armies, the troops moving forward. But I've, I've never thought that the plans in themselves produced the war. They certainly perhaps added to the pressures. You can look at national policies, the German decision to start a naval race with Britain, which led to consequences which the Germans had not really counted on, led to Britain making it up with two of its oldest enemies in the shape of France and Russia, rather than being drawn closer to Germany. You can look at the decision in, in Austria, the decisions being made in Austria-Hungary, that Austria-Hungary had to assert itself in the Balkans or run the risk of Austria-Hungary falling to pieces. And of course, you can look at the individual players, many of whom are absolutely fascinating, um, sometimes too fascinating. I found that when I was writing my book, I had to keep Kaiser Wilhelm from taking it over um, because he is such an extraordinary character. But I don't think we ever can come to any very neat explanation. But that doesn't mean that the war won't continue to haunt us because what we also, I think, remember, and, and Hugh will, I'm sure, say more about this, what we remember is what Europe was like in 1914 and how it seems to have thrown away its power, its advantages, its prosperity, the lives of its people with both hands and what that war did to Europe and what it meant for Europe, what it meant for those who fought in it, what it meant for those who didn't come back, what it meant for their families and what it meant for the much wider world like my own country Canada which changed really considerably during the First World War and the longer shadows that the First World War cast over the 20th century and in some cases still cast today. And so it is a war, I think, that in a curious way haunts us and occupies our imaginations more than the Second World War, which seems perhaps wrongly to us, and I think we could argue this, but it seems more of a clear-cut struggle between a good side and a bad side with, um, for better or worse, a clearer outcome. So I think the First World War will continue to occupy our thoughts and our imaginations. Difficult to tell, I won't be here to see it, but maybe another hundred years from now there'll be a meeting taking place in this room talking about the origins of the First World War. Anyway, thank you very much. Indeed, First World War is what keeps historians in jobs. Uh, and and uh, I think one of the things I'm, what I want to talk about is uh, Margaret having said a few words about the origins. Uh, the way we divide this up, is it, I would say a few words about the opening fighting and, and what the war itself meant once it had begun. Um, and in some ways, the most remarkable thing for me about the beginning of this war is how quickly it becomes, in inverted commas, recognizably a modern war. You know, so, it's so much of the discussion before is a discussion which can be understood in terms of exchanges between diplomats. And television producers get sort of hung up on the willy-nicky exchange between monarchs. And within weeks, what you're talking about is a commitment to ideologies and values which are appropriated by one side or another, um, which had not been there before. Because after all, Europe was a remarkably homogenous continent by the standards, even of today, in terms of where it stood, a Christian community overwhelmingly, not necessarily practicing Christian, a community uh, where many of the values that you would find expressed here within Oxford, you would find re replicated within Germany, uh, and of course Germany standing uh, particularly for Oxonians at the apex of higher education. If you go into the exhibition, uh, which you've just been urged to do, and if you haven't do so, and if you have, go again, um, you will see there is a, a letter from Asquith from the Prime Minister uh, on the 2nd of 
Agnes, uh, writing uh, not to Venetia Stanley in this case, um, <laughs> to his paramour, uh, but commenting on the cabinet, which of course he was going to do in his correspondence with her, um, and saying how the cabinet reached the decision that war was likely, um, but saying also quite clearly that the British Expeditionary Force will not be going anywhere. Um, and uh, that sentiment uh, was replicated the following day when Sir Edward Grey stood up uh, before the House of Commons um, and said that the British Expeditionary Force was going to go somewhere but was not going to go to the continent of Europe. Um, so it was going to go to protect the empire. Uh, and I begin there, or I begin my remarks there, because for this country, the expectation was that the war would be naval um, and that it would not involve uh, a major commitment necessarily to the continent of Europe, even allowing for the staff talks which had taken place. Uh, and that expectation ought to have led to the expectation that the war would also be long. Um, I'm a great believer in the notion that, broadly speaking, the general staffs of Europe did anticipate a long war. Um, Malcolm the Elder, uh, in his dotage, has stressed that point uh, before he uh, had died. Um, and his nephew, the younger Malka, when he became chief of the general staff and had his interview with the Kaiser at the end of 1905, was asked uh, by Wilhelm uh, an intelligent question, unusually for the Kaiser, um, had <laughs> asked him uh, what uh, the nature of a future war in Europe might be. Might be, And he said, well, all I can tell you, Your Majesty, is it's going to be pretty unpleasant, very bloody, and the outcome will be un indecisive, um, as well as the consequence uh, of protracted conflict. In other words, he was pretty hard-headed about what he was likely to confront. What is interesting about the naval planning is much of the naval expectation was that this would be a short war, um, despite the fact that it was underpinned by economic uh, preparations and for the preparation for blockade. If you uh, look at what uh, is said within Russia in planning circles before the outbreak of the war, they said the great thing will be to get Britain in this war. Because if we do, um, economic warfare uh, will follow, and the consequence will be the internal collapse of Germany within short order. Um, that the shortages that will occur as a result of this um, will produce uh, revolution internally. This is a totally untested hypothesis, uh, but there is the expectation uh, that the power of the Royal Navy will be so great and so instantaneous that whereas we would think of blockade, and indeed we do think of blockade if it had an effect in this war, and I believe it did, that if it had an effect, it was a slow-burning fuse. But here is an expectation that it will have a short effect. Um, and in France, in Britain's other principal ally, the Deputy Chief of the General Staff, de Castelnau, uh, makes exactly the same point at the beginning of January 1914. He says the crucial thing is to get Britain in, and if Britain is in, um, then the war will last three months. Um, so it's not a short war illusion if there is such a thing generated by military planning, it's generated by false expectations of naval planning. Uh, and the result, of course, during uh, the latter days of the July crisis, is that the French pressure that is applied to London uh, and particularly to Sir Edward Grey by the French ambassador Cornwall, focuses particularly on the naval obligations that Britain has entered into in relation to, in relation to France. The result of the war being so different from that expectation produces a moral shock. 
people talk about the shock of battle in 1914, and rightly so, because for those who went into action on France's frontiers, for example, on the 22nd of August 1914, the shock of combat was truly devastating. Whole French units ended up uh, over in rather safer places on the west coast uh, of France, uh, having jumped onto trains in order to get out of action. Um, and units uh, not only collapsed, so did individuals. Um, in Galicia, uh, three out of four corps commanders uh, had either killed themselves or suffered major no uh, nervous attacks uh, by September 1914. Um, in the case of the British Army, uh, Douglas Haig, a man whose uh, sang-froid uh, as commander-in-chief of the BEF later in the war would become uh, almost notorious, and probably is notorious today, uh, suffered his one major nervous collapse of the war in the retreat from Mons uh, when his corps was surprised in the middle of the night at Landrecy. And two British regular commanding officers on the retreat from Mons decided that they would surrender their battalions on the way back. Uh, they were trumped and duly court-martialed. Um, but the fact that two men who had served in South Africa, who had distinguished war records, uh, confronted with a combat on a totally different scale, uh, felt the solution to this was to surrender, I think shows just how the impact of modern firepower in practice, as opposed to theory, bore in upon those who were experiencing it on that scale for the first time. And so what I would stress in the experience of 1914 is not so much, this is not in any way to belittle it, the experience of people in the very front line which did produce major uh, collapses of courage, did produce many examples of desertion in those opening weeks, which did result, for example, in Joffre as, as the French commander-in-chief being given summary powers of execution in order to uh, maintain order in the field. It's worth remembering when we talk about capital, uh, capital courts martial and executions uh, that 1914 sees these on a far higher scale than we will see later in the war, proportionate to the size of the army, and that applies to the British army as much as it does to the French. That alongside that, we also need to think about the shock of this for senior commanders. Because although many soldiers had had experience of colonial warfare and knew what it was like to be under fire, what no commander had was experience of command on this scale. Uh, this applies in some ways less to the British Army, which of course is a, pre is a professional, uh, regular army, uh, which goes to France at a strength of under 100,000 men. Applies much more to the armies of uh, Germany, uh, Russia, uh, and to some extent of Austria-Hungary, um, and to France, self-evidently. Armies which go on mobilization from a strength of under a million men to a strength of over three million. And what that creates is a span of command which the best of maneuvers, war games, and map exercises before the war can never fully have accustomed them to. And what they're also experiencing is something they had expected, which is a campaign of maneuver. They've been studying as uh, young men. Uh, they had studied at staff colleges. They looked at Napoleonic campaigns. They expected maneuver. And maneuver was what happened. 
We think of this as a trench wall, but the opening weeks of the war see extraordinary fast maneuver over a large swathe of Europe, but at a level and in a way which these men cannot control. It is outside their control. Very hard to supply armies of three million men on the move. Um, and even harder to communicate with them. There's a wonderful story on the retreat from Mons given by Edward Spears in his, uh, in his book on called Liaison 1914. And if you want a book to read about 1914, I would recommend that. And he describes British officers trying to maintain contact with their units. Um, and what do they do? The only way they can think of is to use the French civilian telephone. They stop and go into the local call box equipment uh, in order to ring Paris and sort of establish where they might be. Because there is no other method. I mean, these units have field telephones, but the telephone line cannot cope with the distances they're having to cover. And of course they have wireless, but in the interest of speed of communication, which is what you need to exercise effective command, you have to encode your messages and that produces, sorry, you, 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 if you encode, that produces delay. If you need speed of communication, you have to dispatch in clear. And of course, that can be intercepted by the enemy who then knows exactly what you're doing. So you're weighing up uh, what you should do in those circumstances. And if you use wireless, you still can't get down to forward small formations because they haven't got land portable field radios. So these are armies that are increasingly out of control. To that extent, and I'll end my observations here, Trench warfare is a wonderful release because trench warfare gives you control again. It is possible to lay field telephone lines at least up to the front line. You lose control again when people lose trenches, leave trenches. But command can, to that extent, reshape war. What it also does, of course, is compound your supply problem because what you find when you establish trench warfare uh, is that artillery fires far more rounds than it ever has done before because it has more targets to aim for. And of course, you have secure lines of communication uh, because you're not moving, but secure lines of communication straight back to an industrial base which is not prepared for this level of shell consumption. Um, so by the winter of 1914-15, you have commanders who say the solution to the problem we should now confront in the trenches is supply of shell, but what you have is an industrial base that has not yet converted to mass shell production. Um, so a different order of problems. So there is an incredible sequence here of change over a very short period of time into relation, in relation to people's expectations. And yet yeah, expectations, in many cases, have anticipated a long war and certainly have recognized uh, that this will be a war shaped by trenches, uh, by extraordinarily high volumes of fire um, and by very high levels of casualty. All those things are there in the pre-war professional literature. But engaging with theory is not the same as engaging with reality. So while you're all collecting your thoughts and thinking of some really difficult and probing questions for Hugh and Margaret, I thought I'd get the ball rolling uh, and perhaps ask one of the things that's quite striking about your book, Margaret, and also a few of the other books that have come out last year uh, and this, I'm thinking, I suppose I'm thinking of the other comparator would be Christopher Clark's on this question of how we deal with um, the origins of the First World War, which is the classic 
problem of causality for all historians. You're quite right. This is the one that you know we can't f find an easy explanation for. Is this? I mean, Clark sets it up differently. And I, I was looking at your two introductions, and actually, I thought yours was a smarter move in that. Chris says um, this book, he's not going to try and say why war broke out in 1914, but rather how war came. So it gives him the opportunity to focus on actors rather than, I mean, he, he doesn't set out the multi-dimensional chess in the way that you have. Though it's interesting, you both talk about walking, <laughs> a different kind of walking. But I, I wondered why in actor, you have actors too, and you're very interested in, and uh, I mean, delightful in the way that you tease out the, their personalities as much as what motivates them. But I wondered if you had some general reflections on why we've become so interested in actors rather than if we think about Fritz Fischer and the kind of classic accounts of the First World War. These are big structural histories that talk about industrialization, democratization, these major forces in history. It's, it's a very good question, and I, I hadn't really thought of it like that. I mean, I think we're perhaps trying to get it under control, and we're trying to say someone must have been able to stop it at some point. There, there, there must have been some decision that, that shouldn't have been made or could have been made in a different way. And I do think there's something in that, because the, the structural forces matter, the ways people think matters, and the people who are in decision-making positions, of course, are dealing with those forces. They, they're aware of the um, comparative power of their nation compared to others. They have some understanding of, um, the, the, you know, they obviously know their own geography. They have, may have some understanding of, of the strength or not of their industrial and, and, and financial base. But, the, and they are very much shaped by the ideas of their own times. But I do think there are moments, um, perhaps mostly not too many in history, where who's sitting in a particular office matters. And so what we're always trying to do is get that balance between the forces and, and the givens within which people have to operate. I mean, if Wilhelm II had been the king of Albania, he couldn't have done as much damage um, because Albania was not in a position to do much damage. But it did matter that he was the Kaiser of an increasingly powerful country um, with a very imperfect constitution and with, in the end, um, considerable power over both foreign policy and, and military policy. And in the end, it was his hand that had to sign. Um, you know, there, there was not, as there was in Britain, a cabinet decision in Germany. And so I think it's, it's very, very difficult. It's always getting that balance. And, and you can go overboard. I mean, as I think the Royal Cousins at War BBC thing did. And, and you know, someone said to me, if only all the cousins could have got together, you know, they could have sorted it out. And, you know, my answer to that is anyone who's ever had a family fight knows that you know, it, it isn't so easy. Um, but I think this is one of the things we grapple with, how, how much, it's what political science called agency. I, I think it's also, isn't it, about, a, you know, we're living in a post-Cold War era. Marxism is gone, and, and that's one of the problems for historians. I mean, I think, you know, when Fisher was writing, the notion that there was a degree of inevitability in history was still one of the consequences of, of a, a Marxist legacy. And the notion, at least for some, that this is a crisis of the liberal capitalist order um, is also there. And what we're actually, because we now live, still live in a liberal capitalist order, that's not what we see. We see, we, you know, we, we see it in different terms. And I, I, and I, th I think that's, that's very important. But I think that absolutely goes to the heart of why is it that we then see a war that breaks out for reasons that are, in inverted commas, accidental, because they're not inevitable. Uh, and then we find a war that assumes a, a force-like element, I mean, which really has the capacity 
to shape a century in so, in so many ways. And, 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 and that is that contrast between you know, the personality and the personality having such sort of gobsmacking consequences. Yeah. But didn't A.G.P. Taylor say that we sometimes assume that great events have great causes? Yeah, yeah. And we don't like to think that it could have just been a mistake mm -hmm. and, and a series of trivial, mm -hmm. perhaps comparably trivial causes. I wonder if, if, I mean, what follows up from that a little bit is how far there's also a shift in, well, if it's a shift, of a kind of accidental, unintended consequence in that when you were talking, Margaret, about the, the series of Balkan wars, and this was just going to be another Balkan war that would be contained, what is it that makes, you know, from, from 1900 up to 1914, uh, this move away from a series of limited wars to something that's quite different? Is there something about the constraints coming off in a way that, that does tie, take the story away from elites and into popular support or the, you know, the need if you're going to have a war to keep, I think I might have got this idea from your work, Hugh, that you have to keep, you have, to keep having events to sustain popular support also mm -hmm. for, for the fighting. Because that's one of the key things that shifts, isn't it? That you have limited war, limited war, great power between smaller powers and suddenly... Well, von Moltke the Elder said, was, must have been almost his last talk in the Reichstag, when he said, we've moved from the age of cabinet wars, where governments decide they want a war for a particular purpose, they'll fight it, when they gain it, they'll stop, um, to the people's wars, and they're very different. Um, and it, you do see the growth of something across Europe and around the world of something called public opinion. And it becomes a factor which statesmen have to deal with. Even in places like Russia, you get the Tsar saying, I really have to worry about what the public is going to think. And this becomes more and more important, and, and the public, you know, we tend to make this assumption that you know, the more democratic countries are, the more peaceful they're likely to be, but that's not always so. And people were, were, you know, could passionately advocate the interests of their own country and often push governments. I mean, I'm always, I think I, I used it because it's such a wonderful phrase. I mean, Lord Salisbury said, um, it's like having a gigantic lunatic asylum at my back. Um, and he didn't like it, but it was something he, he and others had to deal with. And learned to master I mean, they were great, moaned the whole time about the press. But then actually, of course, crucially, the press is, is very important in terms of how he can manage the last week of the July crisis, that you know, he reckons there is an obligation, even if the cabinet doesn't, and, and the press is pushing him in the same direction. But I think the other thing too, I mean, you've got, a, you've got literate societies, varying degrees of literacy, but you've got literate societies, and, and crucially also, societies that have a much more widespread experience of military service. I mean, you know, if you've got conscription uh, at the level that's running it in France, which in France, which is just about the highest level, but 87% or so of French uh, men of military age doing military service, then the expectation that they might have to do this for real is a bigger, sorry, an easier jump to make. Um, than if they haven't had to do that. Um, I, I mean, I still think they're pretty, well, they are pretty surprised. We know they're surprised, and John Jacques Becker shows they're very surprised. But they still reconcile themselves to doing it. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think that's a very important... So, you know, one of the, one of the, the challenges, I think, and, and Margaret will realise this perfectly well, one of the challenges, if you see, basically, a Europe for whom which war is, you know, sort of... Um, impossible to imagine, which is what Freud, you know, said when it ha after it happened. Um, if you see Europe in those terms, then you have to contrast that with a Europe which at the same time is prepared to devote quite a lot of uh, time and effort 
to military endeavours um, and to keeping those high in people's priorities and in terms of expenditure prepared to engage in not so much I think the naval arms rates because I don't think that matters enormously in explaining the outbreak of the war, in fact I think it matters at all in explaining the outbreak of the war, but, but, but certainly in terms of you know, the great race on quick firing field artillery and on fortification which takes a great deal of money in, 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 in the last years before the outbreak of the war. If we follow that through uh, into the, the way that Britain is behaving, or I mean the classic question, the, the different version of, of Margaret's, can you condense the origins of the war, explain them in one sentence, is, is always, is it Germany's fault? Uh, and neither of you really talked about that, though maybe some of the people in the audience want to tease that out a little bit. I want to turn it around and ask whether in this naval, I mean in the arms race, the naval arms race is the obvious place, whether part of it is that because you, talk, you talked about Britain and its, and its position in this and the imperial dimension of British security, whether it's actually that Germany becomes more nihilistic in some ways in its foreign policy or certainly more aggressive because it feels so hemmed in. I mean, it looks hemmed in on the map. It has more neighbours than anybody else. The only way out to enjoy globalisation and empire is through the sea. Is Britain in any way responsible for not facilitating Germany's transition to great power status? I, 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 mean, you, I mean, you know the debate perfectly well, but I mean, the fact that by September 1914, um, there have been real attempts at some form of detente between Britain and Germany, the fact that Churchill can say at the beginning of 1914, you know, as, as, as the naval minister, as, as, as First Lord of the Admiralty, the world's looking a pretty peaceful, peaceful place compared with how it has looked. Um, I, I, I mean, I it, it seems to me the Anglo-German antagonism only matters at the very end of the crisis. Because if the crisis begins in the Balkans, which it does, and if the crisis begins as a clash between Austria-Hungary and Serbia, which it does, and if what both of them, particularly Austria-Hungary, is imagining it will be a limited war, a Balkan war, um, then that is where, at that point, there is no inevitability in the Anglo-German antagonism uh, being an important factor here. Why it becomes important is because Germany is going to move west. Um, and you know, what matters for Britain is Belgium and France. And the big debate for this country is the link between that and imperial security. But it, but it doesn't matter. And, and it really, I mean, Grave memorably says, let's get rid of Serbia, let's sink it somewhere in the middle of the traffic. You know, it, it, we, we really don't want, you know, it's unimaginable that Britain should fight over that. And it's pretty hard to imagine <coughs> that Britain fight over Russia. But when it comes closer to home, then it does matter. I mean, I, and I think the other thing about this is that <clears throat> the the um, that that Germany's um, you know, Britain is not averse to Germany having an empire. I mean, and, and the perversity of the Fisher argument for me, uh, it, it, which is very much uh, endorsed by by uh, Georges Henri Soutou's wonderful book, uh, Law in the Sang, is that why should Germany possibly want to go to war? in order to have a central European economic bloc which can dominate anyway without going to war, uh, at a point where actually, as the second largest indu industrial economy in the world, um, Germany has access to all the world's markets and can only increase its share of world trade if it goes on in the direction it's going. It, there's simply no logic to that argument that says Germany has to go to war to resolve this problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hugo Stinnis, the great industrial mm. secretary, said, I think, in 1914, there's such falls in Berlin. If they mm. wait, it's all mm. going to drop into their laps yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, but, it, but it's also, I think, it's, it's, it's very interesting how 
at that time, and we don't think it now, people thought empires were, were somehow part and parcel of being great. Mm -hmm. And you know, if the crisis had come 20 years later when empires were beginning to be a burden, they may, may well have thought of it differently. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we don't now think that you have to have an empire if you, if you want to um, protect your, your markets, your mm -hmm. raw materials, your, your sources of labor. But I think there was this um, very powerful idea that you couldn't be a true power unless you had an empire. And I think that did drive um, some of the German antagonism to Britain. But as you say, by 1914, the British were um, with, I must say, I always thought the sort of breathtaking um, you know, callousness of great powers were prepared to give Portugal's colonies in Africa mm -hmm. to Germany. You know, Britain's oldest ally, and they were prepared to sell them down the river you know, without a single qualm, as far as I can see. Humanitarian obligation. Yeah. <laughs> so it's one of the catchphrases of the period, isn't it? Humanitarian imperialism, which sounds like very strange to 21st century ears. Just one, just before I open up the, the floor to discussion, I suppose there's a couple of things that I wanted to ask about really relating to the meaning of 1914. Um, and something that you, you stressed very much in your presentation, you was the, was the mobile character of fighting in 1914. And though you didn't mention the Schlieffen Plan particularly, it's one of the really remarkable parts of this story from the German side because from my understanding is they don't really have a plan B. You know, <laughs> you have this, you knock out the West, you fight Russia, that doesn't work. Ugh. And that's one of the, I mean, do we have any more answers about? Well, they don't have a, they don't have a plan B because the plan B is a long war. Um, I mean, the, the plan that the Germans take, and I hesitate to put the prefix Schlieffen on it because Schlieffen is dead um, and, and Schlieffen hasn't been chief of the general staff for a decade. There's yeah. been an awful lot of planning going on since Schlieffen did anything. Um, whether it's changed much is open to question because we don't have enough of the papers and it's hotly debated. But the, but the point remains that Germany has to look for a short campaign because it knows it can't fight a long one, um, uh, uh, particularly after Britain's, Britain enters the war. And, and, the, and the, 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 this is only a campaign plan. It's not a war plan. It's what, it's what the army wants to do in ideal circumstances. And Molke the Younger, uh, um, the problem about Molke the Younger is he really should have been an academic and not a, not a soldier. I mean, he sees the, every side of the, uh, the question. Um, and that is a disaster isn't it, for a general. Um, and what, what, he, what he wants, uh, or what he realizes, is that actually the chances of achieving a quick victory in the West are very slender. Um, and if he doesn't achieve it one way, he's got to be ready enough to try and achieve it another way. And that actually is what produces essentially mental paralysis I and mean, a degree of indecision. But what are the options going to be as, as the invasion of France unfolds and as, of course, events uh, occur on the Eastern Front? So, so there is a real challenge here. But, uh, but I, would, you know, I think central to this is the realisation that if Germany doesn't win in short order and Britain comes in, then economically the conditions are stacked against them um, and in the long run they can't win the war. Which is precisely why the wars go quiet after the Battle of the Marne because Germany ha can't communicate the sense of defeat in, against France uh, and precisely why of course it becomes so important after the war to the German general South historians to prove <coughs> that they should have won the Battle of the Marne because if they accept that they're always going to lose this battle, then the war is lost in 1914 from the very beginning, and it's their doing. Mm. Whereas if they say this is a super plan, 
developed by this whiz kid called Schlieffen, and we could have won the war in, 40 in six weeks or 40 days or whatever it is, um, then, of course, we've got the recipe for it. You know, we've we sorted every problem, but they haven't. Um, and, and that would require a degree of, of, uh, of self-blame, which they're not ready for. No. Well, they blame Maltko the Younger, don't they? They say he tinkered well, with the plan and he you know, had this beautiful sort of clockwork thing and he put grit in the... Yes, the, it's him, it's Hench, the yeah. guy who has to you know, take, do the liaison between the armies. It's yeah. the individual army command. It's never the collective responsibility of the German army. So my final question before I open it up to the floor is this question of collective responsibility in, in relation to us, because we're now three, four months in, probably longer, feels like longer, to the commemorative activities. <laughs> Are there things that we're forgetting, things about it that have surprised you because you've been, both been so involved in the public memory of... What, what I still find frustrating is, and I, I, don't, I think you might agree, I want to let you speak, but speaking as a Canadian, I mean, the, 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 the fact that the empire is being left out in so many of the stories, I mean, we mattered, and we mattered increasingly as the war went on. We may not have mattered in the opening, the opening stages, but we did matter a lot. I mean, I think without the empire, Britain couldn't have sustained its war effort. And the other thing which I regret very much in, in a number of the commemorations is that they're so <laughs> thoroughly national. And I think, you know, this is something, a hundred years later, we should be looking at this as a phenomenon. And the, Hugh has actually been, been leading this wonderful project in Oxford, which is doing just that. Look at the war as a phenomenon that affected societies, often in very similar ways, um, across borders. This, you know, to see it as something that purely was a sort of German tragedy, French tragedy, British tragedy, not to, not to look at the ways in which it really affected um, the whole world, I think, is, is we're missing an opportunity a bit. Well, uh, well, I agree. I mean, I think we, we've been so relentlessly parochial in what we've been doing. Um, and na even national is, is exaggerating some of the things that are going on. But obviously, there is a, a trouble uh, uh, that any nation will do things at national level, of course. Uh, and, and, and it's very hard to break out of that. But, but if we can't do it comparatively, and in Britain in particular, as you absolutely rightly say, Margaret, as... as, as uh, as the head of an empire. But part of the difficulty, of course, is that the government finds it very hard to deal with the notion of empire today. And actually, the memory of empire is not there either. I mean, the British Council report last year uh, on approaches to the centenary reckoned that 70% of the population of Britain did not know Australia and New Zealand were in this war. Um, and uh, I mean, which is a staggering uh, level of ignorance, which precisely shows the educational opportunity, and that leads on to my second point, which would be we're doing too much Remembrance Day stuff for the beginning of the war. We have no idea of pacing this centenary. Um, and that you know, standing by the Cenotaph is totally inappropriate for August 1914. Um, the Cenotaph isn't there. Uh, and, and so far, nobody's died. If I can give you an illustration of this, which brings together these two points about empire and, and getting it wrong. I was in Auckland, and I hope there's no Kiwi here, but my wife's a New Zealander, so it's probably okay to for, I'll take the flag. Um, I was in Auckland uh, at the end of August, uh, lecturing uh, in the museum, and there was a service at the Cenotaph beforehand, Governor General was there, in order to mark the departure of the New Zealand Advance Force to Samoa. So this is the first New Zealand troops leaving uh, New Zealand. So what do we have? Uh, we had last post, two minutes silence, binion, uh, flowers of the forest, wreaths were laid. Um, 
And I had great pleasure in standing up and giving a lecture two hours later and saying, not a single New Zealander was killed, not a single German was killed, not a single Samoan was killed. Um, and this was, from New Zealand's point of view, a bloodless victory um, in that New Zealand then ruled Samoa until 1962. That's the bit that New Zealand's sort of slightly ashamed of, of course. But the, but the, but the point is that you know, we're not understanding this in its own terms. Uh, we're, 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 we're in, and if we simply treat it as remembrance in the sense in which we think of Remembrance Sunday, then quite frankly, uh, this is not going to achieve very much. Um, and we're certainly not going to be engage, able to engage, because that's a national way of doing things, we're not going to engage comparatively, and we're not going to uh, widen understanding for those who, uh, who need to understand. I mean, if, if, you know, if those who fail to recognize the empire, it's a generational thing. Um, and you know, the, the, the danger in so many of these events is that you've got to be over 50 to qualify. Um, it doesn't make much sense to those who are at school, uh, which is precisely where we should be thinking about targeting our efforts. Thank you. Well, it's not, not a controversial ending among our speakers, but it's lots of more food for thought, really. So thank you to all of you for such terrific questions, for putting up with this bit of the feedback in the microphone system. I'm afraid we left it like this because we thought on balance it would be better if you could hear us at the back of the room than not. Uh, to the Bodleian for bringing us together and, of course, to our two wonderful speakers. Thank you. Thank you.